You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as the family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. Welcome again. It is a beautiful day, and thank you so much for coming. Yeah, a lot of of, uh, graduation things going on this weekend, so there's always things to do, but we appreciate you being here. Um, you know, today, I, I, I've, I'll just be honest, I'm like in turmoil about what I'm going to say to you today. And so this is what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask that with everything possible, you lay down everything you think you know. And, and try to hear me. Not through your own filters, but through what Jesus would be like. And so, um, you know, we've been on a series, Garden to City, and so this is a little bit of a detour, but it's kind of a rightful detour with things that are happening in our world right now. And so um, there's going to be a little bit of, a little touch of R-rated information in here for you bridge kids. I happened to don't have class today. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. <laughs> um, so we're going to put up a diagram real quick. I'm going to do a little bit of a, a, a f- kind of a teaching thing for you before I even get started. So this is not part of the series. You can get rid of that. Go to the uh, diagram there, Nolan. All right, so if you've got your notes in front of you, um, you'll see this little diagram. This is kind of a diagram that... Um, a number of years ago, Mark Estes kind of showed me, and it's, it's just a little bit of a pictorial thing that will describe to you how we come to the conclusions we come to as Christians, or maybe how we should at least, and especially as a church. And so what you've got at the bottom here of this uh, kind of stack of blocks is the Word of God. Now on your notes, I have something below that. This is not in their diagram, but I added something below that, a question. You see the question, are we Christ-like? Because here's something I want to propose a thought to you. The Word of God is absolutely imperative to our lives as Christians. But what the Word of God does is very specific. It informs us not just of information. It actually informs us or should point us to what Jesus is like. So everything we read in the scriptures is, uh, you know, there's a variety of things, right? I mean, actually in the New Testament, when Jesus even speaks to the scriptures, he says the law and the prophets. And you see this kind of different categorizations that have happened even in the Old Testament. There's the law that was written, and then there's the prophets, and then there's, there's actually poetry, and the Psalms would have been under this poetry kind of category. And so there's different ways of looking at the scripture, and absolutely we believe it's inspired, and it's the thing that guides our life. But the thing it's supposed to guide us to is, are we like Jesus? Because at the end of the day, we're Christians. If you come to church and you follow Christ, it's self-explanatory in this statement. <laughs> you follow Christ above everything else. And so we have to ask ourselves these questions, are we Christ-like? But then the Word of God should be informing us if we are. Right? Are you with me? So the Word of God, we read the stories. But that's why I, I honestly, I live a lot in the Gospels because it's Jesus' actual life here. 
And so I have to ask myself constantly, am I Christ-like? Is the word of God informing me that I'm Christ-like? That's what theology really is. Theology is the study of God. It's the study of trying to understand, are we actually living the design that we're called to live? This is why we're even doing the series Garden to City, because we're looking back at this original design in Genesis and, and asking ourselves questions, where did we go awry, and are we actually living under the image of God that he's placed on us, that we're called to bear his image? And so uh, the, the word of God informs our theology and our study. It's what helps us to understand you know, who he is and, and what he's like, but then that informs our philosophies. And so our philosophies, you know, you've got these little you know, words to the side, the why, the why of what we do. And philosophy is, is kind of like uh, the idea of like, why would you come to church and this is the format that you see? There's philosophies that guide us to decide that this is what church service should look like. But there's also philosophies that should guide what is your life actually going to look like. And that partially goes into values, your philosophy about what God, who God is and what he's like should, should go into your value system. If you've been to our church at all for a while, we have a, a kind of a list of values. The values are not the only values in the world, but they're the ones that we think are most important to us, and they shape who we are. And so our values shape who we are. And then you get to strategies and methods. And so when you're looking at life or you're looking at church, strategies and methods are just when, where's, and how's. It's how, how can we actually present the God of the universe, who Jesus is to a world that's around us. Those on the side, you see, they should change, right? I mean, if you're going to a church or a group that looks exactly like it did maybe 200 years ago, you might want to go, is this still effective? Now, the things below that dotted line don't really change. Now, I put slow to change, they don't really change. You know, the word of God, I stop there because that doesn't change. But the theology, philosophy, and values, those should be really hard for you to change in once you've actually understood because hopefully the word of God is informing it. Now, this is what I'd like to say, why I even have slow to change there, is because sometimes we get it wrong. Is that okay to say? Sometimes Christianity over the last 2,000 years has created doctrines and theologies out of the word of God that I would say did not look Christ-like. And so we have to constantly be asking ourselves this question. This is kind of how my, my life works. When we make decisions as a church and when I make decisions as a person or as a leader, I'm trying to kind of go through this process of like, am I really honoring who God is and who Jesus is in this process? And the reason I'm sharing this little diagram with you today is because... This week, a pretty, you know, a pretty historical thing happened. Roe v. Wade, a Supreme Court case that happened in 1973, was overturned. And depending on where you sit on the aisle of politics, really weighs in how you feel about this. Am I right about that? But let me say this. There's no politics in this diagram. You cannot decide how you feel about these things based on the political air of the day. And so I want to just first say that, like, 
as much as it's easy to get pulled into one side or the other, because this is what I'm going to say to you today. Regardless of the side of the political aisle you're on today, most likely you won't leave very comfortable with what I say. And so I'm going to start with kind of some heavy things, if that's all right, because this is extremely important. I, I just want to say this, the idea of abortion, the idea of pro-choice and pro-life and, and this thing that we've been kind of at war with each other in the United States for the last 50 years and pre, pre that as well, is a topic that literally touches every person. Right now, the statistic is that one in three women in the United States have had an abortion. So the first thing I want to say is this. There's very possibly people in this room. And I have to go back to this thing, and even as this kind of decision weighed down this week, now we, of course, we knew about it weeks ago, that it was going to happen. The minute I heard about it in the news three weeks ago, I texted Mark Estes at, at Manor House. I said, Mark, what are you going to say? He said, we're working on it right now. And they, they, you know, they have doctorates and theologians. They have literally a position paper that they gave me just last uh, two days ago. I would love to share that with anybody that really wants the theology behind some of this. And so we talked actually at length yesterday, me and Mark, because I, I said, I got to get up on a stage tomorrow and I want to present something. But at the end of the day, what do I want to present the most? And I'll tell you this, it's not truth. The thing I want to present the most is what is Jesus like? And there's one story that I want to start before I get into some of the heavy stuff here. Because I have to, to speak about abortion, to speak about this situation in our country, to speak about even why we have had, a, you know, a court proceeding that said one thing for the last 50 years and now the court overturns it and, and of course... Hopefully you understand how the world actually works, that that just overturned a case, that really the legislation now goes back to the states, which actually puts more power in the hands of the people than it does the court. And I would just say, from a, from a purely governmental point of view, I say that's a good thing. Because when the, when the court rules things that are not really outlined, and, and I'm going to be careful here, because there's nowhere in the Constitution that the word abortion or pro-life or pro-choice exists. When 19, in 1973, when that court case was passed, it was done under the, amend, the 14th Amendment under the category of right to privacy. And so they, you know, in their ideas, they illuminated that right to privacy term and included abortion that. Now, I would just say, I would rather have the, in, in a governmental situation, please hear me, I'm not speaking necessarily as a Christian, but I would rather have the rights in, in our legislative ability to vote than with the Supreme Court. Because when the Supreme Court acts on something, you almost don't have the ability to change it. It's really difficult. So for them to just overturn something that they already adjudicated, I, know, I think that's just a good thing in the terms of government. But what it does is it causes a great question in the hearts of many people. It causes fear. For some, it causes hope. And so what we have to do as Christians is now look at the whole situation and say, what is Jesus going to be like in the midst of this situation? How would Jesus act? What would he say? What would he do? Unfortunately, we don't see that anywhere in Scripture about this particular situation. 
But I think there is one story that I love that shows the heart of Jesus in the midst of something very difficult that involves the law. And it's John 8, and it's the story of the woman caught in adultery. And I want to turn there. If you have your Bibles, I only put one verse on your whole thing today. <laughs> I've got other verses, but I didn't put them on there. But I want to turn to John 8, and I want to read this story, because if we're going to talk about this, Every one of us in this room that calls ourselves a Christ follower, if you're watching me online today, you call yourself a Christ follower, you have to think to yourself, do I have the heart of Jesus when I think through this? When I talk to someone else about this, this topic, when I talk about pro-life or, pro or pro-choice, do I have the heart of Jesus? Or, or maybe, especially as Christians, the warning I'm going to give you is do you just come with a hammer of truth? And you know what hammers do, Right? They bludgeon things. They're not soft nor kind. In construction, the answer to all my construction problems are get a bigger hammer. In life, don't get a bigger hammer. It does not help. And so we have to come saying, how would Jesus be in this? So here we are. Let's read this story because I think it will help illuminate a little bit for us. John 8, verse 1. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? I want to stop here real quick. So you've got a woman caught in the act of adultery, and in that day, it was against the law. Now, I appreciate the Bible because you know what it says? It says the law of who? Moses. The law of Moses. I would dare say this is not the law of God, that we should stone somebody. But the law of Moses did dictate this. And what we see is Jesus, in a moment, he's going to actually undo the law that they understood. And so you've got this precedent in their law system of the day of how they're supposed to act, but yet Jesus decides, I'm not going to act like that. And these are the religious leaders, too. So they come under a religious presumption to present this situation. Now we're going to see it was all on purpose to trap Jesus. It says, teacher, they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Verse 6, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. I would just warn this. If you're on Facebook and you're sharing memes from either side of this situation, they're just trying to trap you. Seriously, just stop. It's trying to trap you. Now, maybe the person who made the meme isn't under some guise to trap you, but I'll tell you who is. The liar. The enemy. The devil. He's trying to divide a people group more than we already are. And so I would just ask you right now, realize that in this world there are people and there are situations that are just trying to trap you. Don't get trapped. It says, but Jesus stooped down, and he wrote in the dust with his finger. 
They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. I've heard all sorts of things about what maybe Jesus was writing. Some presume that maybe he was writing a list of sins of the people that were around him. Someday I'd love to ask, what did you actually write? But something happened between him writing in that dust and him saying, okay, go ahead, throw the first stone as long as you've never sinned. And what we see that takes place in verse 9 says, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. I've read through this scripture many times, preached it many times, and I think we understand. There's a reason I think the oldest leave first, because they realize in their own heart, wow, if I start to add up what my life looks like. And they realize, I, I have no chance of throwing that stone. It says, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I think this story shows us what Jesus is like in a way that even many others don't. We've got a situation with the law. We've got a situation with the religious understanding of the day and the religious leaders. We've got a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And and many of us would say, yeah, that's probably just a bad life choice. This is sin. This is something outside the design of God. We could easily point to that act and say she shouldn't be doing that. But yet what we see is Jesus doesn't come with condemnation and the truth of the situation, he literally does something that shows love to her, and then at the end of all of that, he says, neither do I condemn you. And at that point, he's earned this place to tell her, go and sin no more. The first thing I want to say is that I think the church has been in error, and this is not just about abortion in this case, but we're talking about abortion and pro-life. We've been in error because we've, we've seen such egregious acts in our world. And I would just be honest and say, I believe that abortion is this egregious act. The most vulnerable human beings. In 1973, the, the pitch was really around the idea that they were not humans yet. But science shows that even within a few days, five to six days, there's already the formation of all the things that will, will be. And, and within, five, I think it's in... Uh, Four weeks, there's a heartbeat. There's all these things that we now understand as science that shows that really from conception, there's life there. And if we go back to the beginning of Genesis, we have to look at Genesis and say, does this person in the womb bear the image of God? The scriptures would tell us it does. And so I do think there's this egregious act, but, but what has happened is the church has taken something that is, that is broken in our world. And instead of trying to come at it like Jesus would, we've just come at it with a very large hammer. And I think that what's happening even in today's world is people don't even want to listen to us anymore. And I'll just propose this idea. I think it's because we haven't loved radically enough. 
I'm afraid to even talk about these things publicly because I know that it could be easily so judged and so uh, you know, taken apart and used against me. And, and what I'm most afraid of is creating a larger gap be- between Jesus and the world than is already there. I don't want to be a part of that. I want to constantly help close that gap. I want to pull people closer to Jesus, just like somehow in the midst of this story, he, he pulls this woman in to realizing that he is not going to condemn her, but yet he does ask her to change. He asks her to be different than the way she was. And so there's a place in this world that as Christians, we have to be able to look at abortion. We have to be able to look at whatever way it's being talked about and realize this is not God's best for the world. Since 1973, there's been 63 million legal abortions in the U.S. Over 99% of those are considered elective abortions. And when I say elective abortions, because there's always the hot topic of, well, what if? What if? What if the woman is? Now, most laws, just so you know, almost every state laws include freedom for people to be able to make a choice if the woman's life is in danger. But let me just say this. According to the CDC statistics, 03 to 0.5% of, of abortions that have happened over the last nearly 50 years are considered medical emergencies. I'm going to read these statistics because I kind of want this to be a little painful. That would be around 3,780 abortions a year are what is considered an actual medical emergency. Something is happening, and they decide to take the life of the child, and they do the mother. And so they make this choice. There are nearly 3.6 million births every year, so this is 0.00105% of why people choose abortions. It's difficult. I, I understand this. Like, I think that Jesus and God has this nuance in understanding the difficulty. I don't think this is the same consideration. But what we're looking at is the reality that 99% are what's elective abortions. Now, I want to read a few statistics of why. 25% in 2015, when they did a huge, long, 10-year look at this, 25%, they could not financially support another child. 23% said they were unready. Another 16% said they had too many children. Now, I personally would say, we cannot be callous to the realities of why people make these decisions. Because now let me read some other statistics to you. Currently, there are 425,000 plus kids in foster care. 125,000 plus of those kids are currently freed to be adopted and awaiting adoption. Nearly 1,500 of those kids every single month age out of foster care without ever being adopted into a family. There are nearly 1 million Christian churches in the U.S. 378,000 evangelical churches. If just the evangelical churches would decide to take one child 
in foster care, there would be no foster care problem. So what I'm saying today is we're part of the problem. We're culpable in the reality that people feel forced to make decisions where they take the life of their child rather than thinking that there's a possibility for the world to take care of them. Now, I know there's Christians out there and there's incredible organizations. My wife and I are involved in it deeply. You know that. But what I'm saying is it's not enough. The church hasn't done enough. If the church had done enough, then I think that most women would make the decision, well, of course, I'll just have this baby. and I'll, Because actually, you know what? Only 3% of women decide to have an abortion because they don't want anyone to know they were pregnant. So the other 97% of people who are having abortion are feeling forced into the situation. Imagine if the church loved so radically they would not feel forced. Because I will say this, I've said it a hundred times. Our government will never legislate a morality to the kingdom of God. They never will. Am I happy? Am I absolutely happy? I really am about this court decision. But I understand it's complicated. I understand it's difficult because now you've got women who are terrified because they don't know what's going to happen when, when maybe before they had at least a certainty of what was going to happen. Whether it was right or wrong or in between. And so you've got this incredibly difficult situation. And I would say to us, the church, we might have missed it here. And like Jesus in the situation with the woman who's caught in adultery, I think that if he, she was, I think if he was here in this place, I think he'd be challenging us deeply, not just bludgeoning a hammer about the truth of abortion. Yes, abortion has been painfully egregious, I think, in our world. In fact, I hope that 100 years from now, we'll look back on abortion like we look back on slavery. And think to ourselves, how did we do that? But I'll tell you what, you ever been backed into a corner? Does anybody ever make good decisions when backed into a corner? You never do. And when I think about these statistics or why someone would choose these, these difficult situations to have an abortion, this is what I think. They have no hope. They have no hope. And you want to know why they have no hope? Because they probably don't know Jesus. And if they don't know Jesus and you're in the midst of a situation where you have an unwanted pregnancy or you ended up pregnant and you didn't want to be pregnant, what hope do you have? As Christians from the outside, it's easy for us to look almost impersonally at the situation and say, oh my gosh, well, it's a life. It doesn't matter how you feel. Sure, but at the end of the day, what hope do you have unless you have Jesus? So again, this is the job of the church. To be a light so bright in the world that darkness has no place to stand. You know, Jesus goes on to talk about light and darkness right after this. Talks about being a light in the world and this idea that wherever the light shines, the darkness cannot be. That is how abortion is, is, has, gets rid of. It won't be because we decide laws are going to do it. Half the states will have, a, will have laws 
that limit abortion or stop abortion, and those people will drive to another state. Because, unfortunately, I'd say laws and court cases are like taking Advil. You haven't fixed the problem. You've just done something for the symptom. And so the problem is that the church needs to radically love beyond all our understandings of previous love for the world. That's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that if we were able to somehow have moments like we see in John 8 where Jesus confounds the religious understanding and the laws of the day and somehow loves this woman in the midst of such a difficult place in her life that actually she can go away and change. This is the job of the church. Isaiah 58, I want to turn here. If you have your Bibles, it's in the Old Testament. I'm going to find it myself. We see what's happening in Isaiah 58 is Isaiah is recording something God is speaking to him. I want to read verses 1 through 12, and I think this gives us a picture. And even is this something God's saying to his people in the Old Testament, a reminder of what they were supposed to look like to the world around them. Isaiah 58, verse 1 says, Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins, yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. Let's just make sure we're not in those first verses, right? We have, and it says, they ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We've been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice it. Don't we do this in Christianity? We think that we think that acting pious or acting in this righteous way somehow gets us this leverage with God. But we're going to find out what gets God's attention. It says, and you don't even notice it. Verse 3, middle of verse 3, I will tell you why I respond. This is God speaking. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. So fasting in that day would have been this religious activity to kind of act and show, especially the world around you, how religiously good you were. It says, you've been fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. Humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. Dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. He's talking on how they should present themselves. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No. This is the kind of fasting I want. This is really some good scripture. This is God speaking. This is the kind of fasting I want. Now he's using this term fasting, but I'm just, I would just say here, this is the kind of religious 
world I want. This is the kind of religious people. This is what I want people to look like that look like me. This is what God's saying. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. That's a funny one. (laughs) Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer, yes, I am here and he will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. And then your light will shine out from the darkness. And the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities and will be known as a rebuilder of walls and the restorer of homes. of single-parent homes in the U.S. are women, single women with children. Over 11 million children currently in the U.S. live in poverty, and almost 87% of those are single-family homes. I look at the world... I look at the choices they make. And it's easy for us to want to throw stones. But what I see is a church and a people who have not fully grasped the job that God has put in front of us. Imagine if we cared for single-family homes. I'd ask right now, don't look around, but try to think in your head how many single mom homes are in this church. There's not many, let me tell you that. I thought about it this weekend as I was reading these statistics. I thought, well, wait a second, why don't, why don't we have many single moms? That should be, a, that should be a, a gnawing question in our hearts. 11 million children and 80% of those families that are living in poverty or single mom homes, how come we aren't reaching those homes? When then we wonder, why would a single mom decide to have an abortion? They've got no hope. And somehow the church has not seen it clearly enough. And I read Isaiah 58, and I want to think, Jesus, are are we actually living this way? Now, as much as I'm kind of chastising the church, let me say this. The church does more for the world than any other organization. There are more Christian organizations for adoption than there are of any other kind added together. And so there is a heart in the church that wants to to work on these situations, but I would just tell you this, we have a lot more work to do.
And the thing that I would say today, don't get caught up in the hype of what people are saying around you. You know, I hear constantly from the pro-choice side, they look at the church and they want to judge the church and say, well, you, you only care about the unborn, but what about the unborn after they're born? And I would say that, yeah, we, we probably aren't doing the best we can, but I'll tell you what, some of us are doing things. But there's more work to be done. There's more love for us to show. There's more places for us to go in a radical manner of love to show the life of Jesus and who he is than the world has ever seen before. You know, um, two weeks ago, I came over here to mow the lawn. I'm going to kind of end with this funny story. I came over here to mow the lawn because our mower was broken, and so I brought my mower down, and I was unloading it. I look over, and there's a guy sleeping on our picnic table. And my first thought was, is he sleeping on our picnic table? <laughs> What's this guy doing? And so he sees me unloading. I, I, I just see him over there. I'm like, I'm not going to go bother him, but... You know, I'm unloading my lawn tractor, and he gets up, so he starts walking to me, and so I shut off. I said, hey, how you doing? Is everything okay? I saw you laying down on the picnic table. And I realized pretty quickly, oh, you know, he's clearly homeless. And so I said, you know, he introduces himself real quick. His name's Ed. And uh, we start talking. He goes, yeah, I, I, you know, he goes, you know, I'm traveling through. I'm trying to get to Great Falls, Montana. And I'm like, why are you in Messina? You know, it's the wrong end. And uh, he has a long story of why he was here. And, and so he starts to tell me that last night when he wandered up into town here, um, he saw the church and he thought, wow, this, I thought this is such a nice big church. Maybe they'll help me. And so he said, of course, all the doors were locked. It was late in the evening. So he went out back. And he said within a short period of time, uh, our neighbor actually came across the road and saw him, this lady. And she said, you know, is everything okay? I saw you out here laying, you know, I was walking my dogs. And, and he just said, oh, yeah, I'm just passing through. And she was like, well, you can't stay out here. And, you know, mostly out of concern, not like, oh, you need to leave, but out of concern for him. And he was like, I was really caught off guard by that. And then he, then he said that the lady called the police, thinking the police would help. And so the police come, and they talk to him. He thought he was going to get in trouble, and he was all worried. And he tells a story about the police, you know, basically trying to help him out. He ends up sleeping there that night. And so that, you know, I take him out to lunch that day. I took him to dinner that night. And I let him come and stay in our, our church building. You know, I did lock a few doors. But I let him stay in here, a good thing, because it rained. And the next morning I came here and I was talking to him. I said, Ed, how'd you sleep? He goes, oh, God, it was good. He goes, I'm just not used to people being this nice to me. And I thought to myself, imagine if that's what the world was surprised by. And I think about a, a situation like we're in right now, and Roe v. Wade turns, and, and I, I would say as Christians, there should be a celebration in the fact that the government isn't saying just blanketly it's okay. But what I would like even more than that is if people come and have a conversation with us and they're surprised and say, this isn't what I was expecting.
I didn't expect you to be that nice to me. I didn't expect you to show me love in the midst of this situation. I didn't expect for you to care for me when I've done things that maybe you disagree with. I didn't expect this. That should be what happens in the world around Christians who are actually looking like Christ. But something happens and people get confused by our love for them. They get confused by our decisions and our actions around them. Now just so you know, we let Ed stay here three nights and we helped him to get to Great Falls. <laughs> we paid a, paid a bus ticket for him. But this is what I would implore you today. There's, there's two things I want to leave with you now. One is this, surprise the world. Just let that soak in. Surprise the world. Don't be what they expect. Surprise them. And the last one is this. I can, I can tell you 100% that there's people in this room on both sides of this decision that think very differently about the decision. Do not let division come among you. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.10. Don't let there be any divisions among you. Even in disagreements or different perspectives or different experiences of life, I would implore us, if we want to surprise the world first, how about as Christians we just get along? Surprise the world and don't let this become another divisive point in the world for us. Let the world look at Christians today and not see just a larger hammer, but see a radical love that they are surprised by. Can we stand this morning? I've always loved this scripture out of John, or out of Luke 6, verse 27, where Jesus starts and he says, to those of you willing to listen. And he goes on to say, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. He challenges the Christians in that day, but I love that he he starts with this idea of, for those of you willing to listen, I think that's kind of how I felt coming in today. Not sure who's going to be willing to listen to this. But I'm convinced that in the heart of every Christ follower, you know you're called to look like Christ. And so as we make decisions in these next days and weeks and months, wait till we get to the midterms or wait till we get to 2024, in a politically driven world, can we surprise the world? I think we can. I'm going to pray for you and, and we're going to do a song. God, we just thank you right now for who you are. Jesus, we are so thankful that every one of us is in here only by your grace. Every one of us knows you only by your grace, that it's not anything that we've done that's earned our way to you. God, all of us have fallen short. God, it doesn't matter the decisions of the past or the decisions even of the future. If we grab hold of your grace, God, something happens within us. That we can experience the love of the God of this universe. And then we can not just experience it, but we can actually show the world around us what you're like, Jesus. So, Father, I ask, challenge us today. Let us be deeply challenged today. To look at those different than us. To look at those who don't think like us. To look at those who actually see the world in a different view. And to love them radically. 
to surprise the world with what we say, with what we do, with how we act. God, we just thank you. We give you permission this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.